Let's read the verses also that surround our text this morning. Uh, verse 15, let's begin with verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? And again, we're in 1 Peter chapter 3. Now in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. May the Lord give us wisdom and understanding from His Word this morning. Well, it's finally here. Almost. After Tuesday, it, it will all be over. And all the political rhetoric and discussions and debates will be over. And we will have a new president voted into office. Mm -hmm. And we look to God as to what the future may hold. We're concerned about our economy. We're concerned about our health care. As a nation, especially us as believers, we're greatly concerned about the decline in, our, in the morality over the last few years. We long for the law of God to be honored for a Judeo-Christian ethic to come back into place in this United States. Because it seems today that we have little basis for truth. As we've looked back over the last five or so decades, it's sad to say that we have indeed been in a great moral decline. We remember the sexual revolution of the 60s. Remember in the early 70s, Roe v. Wade, abortion became legalized. We've seen a breakdown in the family, high divorce rates. Many people choosing not to marry. They ask the question, why should we even consider marriage? Now we have same-sex marriage adopted throughout our society. Men marrying men, supposedly. Saying they are. Women marrying women. Now we're not even sure what constitutes a person being a male or being a female. To many, they believe that it is according to their own feelings whether or not they are a man or whether or not they are a woman. And if one counsels certain persons that is having this gender confusion, trying to teach them and to counsel with them that they should seek to indeed follow out the leanings of their own physical gender, then they are subject to even being uh, under persecution by the law in many states. Euthanasia has become legal in some of our states. People ask the question, well, what's wrong with allowing grandma to kill herself, with assisting grandma to kill herself if she's sick, if she's old, 
and if she's depressed. In some countries, age is not even a factor as whether or not you have the right, the legal right, to die. The Christian philosopher and theologian and Presbyterian pastor, Francis Schaeffer, saw this coming. He said that way back in the 70s and 80s that a dramatic change in Western civilization was to occur. He predicted the very thing that there would be men like Jack Kevorkian that you could hire to assist you in killing yourself. He saw the moral decline coming. He saw the rise of a hostile, secular age. And yes, by and large, we have this today, don't we? This past week, I read an article from Al Mohler's the, the Briefing, and he spoke of Francis Schaeffer's book that came out in 1976. The article drew my attention because Al Mohler mentioned in the article that uh, that was the year that he graduated from high school, the bicentennial year. Well, that was the year I graduated from high school. Mohler said that uh, this book that Francis Schaeffer wrote how should we then live was placed in his hands. I think he was directed by D. James Kennedy at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. So he began to, to study this book. The book talks about, the subtitle is The Rise and the Decline of the Western Culture. The church at that time was still somewhat influential. It was the booming age of the megachurch, so Al Mohler says. And he says, by and large, as a nation, we were comfortable. We were sitting before our television sets watching Gunsmoke, and we were happy with the new opening of Disney World. The turbulent 60s were past. The Vietnam was over, and life wasn't too bad. Yet, as Francis Schaeffer says in his book, there was, and as Mohler indicates over the past few decades, there was a larger intellectual current that was setting the stage for a major shift in our culture. That's where we are today. We, are, we see this hostile secularism today. And then, here was Francis Schaeffer coming over the scene. Some of you remember him. He, was, he looked a little odd with his knickers and his long hair and his baggy shirts and his, his beard. He looked more like a Swiss mountain climber than a, than a pastor or a, or a theologian. But he came and he, he began to use words like worldview and, and presuppositions. Words that have been around, but words that were not too well understood. And he warned us all that people develop their own worldviews based upon what society does rather than the, the Word of God today. And they, they develop their presuppositions. They presuppose that something is right or wrong based on what they understand. And from those presuppositions, they live their life. From those presuppositions, they form their worldviews. And today, we have a culture of worldviews that is been formulated contrary to the Word of God. And yet, God has spoken in His Word. He has not been silent. 
And we today can come before the Word of God and know that this is the infallible and errant Word of God and that it is indeed the only infallible rule for faith and practice. Amen. We believe that the moral law that God gave through Moses is true and binding and required from every civilization. Our founders used to believe that. We see Moses engraved over our Supreme Court building. But yet, many today doubt is in fact, is this a credible source of truth? They also doubt that in these last days God had spoken, has spoken through His Son. But we whose hearts have been changed by the power of Christ know that this is the Word of God and we know that Christ has come forth and He is the very Son of God and He has spoken and whatever He says is absolute truth. Amen. We are not left to be in the dark. We are not as sheep without a shepherd. The context of 1 Peter strikingly is much like we face today except even far worse. Peter was addressing those believers who had been dispersed because of persecution. Dispersed throughout the Roman Empire in an area that we would refer to today as modern day Turkey. And he writes from Rome but he says in 1 Peter chapter 5, in verse 13, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. So he refers to this church with an alias term. Is that known as Babylon? Well, that was a code name. What was he talking about? Well, he was talking about Rome being that center of secular thought. Rome being that center of world power. It was the mecca of idolatry and sensuality. The, the wicked emperor Nero was the Caesar at the time and he was reigning and he was prompting the persecution of Christians. Rome, there was a, a, a great fire had occurred in Rome and Nero saw it as a perfect opportunity to blame Christians for the reason that the fire is started. And he would actually take some, some believers and impale them and hang them up and light them on fire. He said, oh, they claim to be the light of the world. We'll let them light our parties. So there was great persecution. So Peter wrote in chapter 4 and verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rather rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, and that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Yes, endure hardships. Trust in the Lord no matter what is going on. That's the message from 1 Peter to us today. No matter what goes on in the political spectrum, whether or not we're going to have a Democratic president or a Republican president, whether or not Congress is going to be controlled by the Democrats or Republicans, whether or not we are in peace, whether or not we are in war, whether or not we face prosperity or we face depression. Our mission and our agenda, our concern is very clear. The Lord has told us in His Word that come what may, He's told us how we are to live 
and how we are to speak the truth. And that's the two things I want us to see this morning in this text. In verse 15, Peter tells us those two things. That's what we're going to look at today. How we are to live and how we are to speak. First of all, how are we to live? He says there very plainly there in verse 15, the first part of the verse, he says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Well, what does he mean? Well, he doesn't mean that we actually bring sanctity to God from our hearts. It doesn't mean that we in some way make God holy. No, not at all. It simply means that we revere the Lord God as He is. It could also be translated correctly that we are to set apart Christ as the Holy Lord. Now, there's a variant reading which is... Uh, you may have a footnote up on that, but in most Greek texts, Christ is in the original language. In other words, as we set Him up, the word means to, to sanctify or to set apart. We are to set Him apart. We are to honor Him for who He is. Who is He? Well, He's Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Holy One. The word sanctify means to set apart or to make holy. We are to understand Him as the Holy One. The One that came forth from God and that He is in fact what? He's Lord. He is the sovereign ruler of this universe. We simply ascribe to Him according to who He is. We understand that. And is this not our desire as Christians? Jesus taught us to pray, and He said when we pray, we are to pray our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. That's the first petition in the Lord's Prayer. That we are to desire that God's name be made holy. That this world may see Him as He is, as the Holy Christ, the Lord who reigns from heaven. We are to recognize Him as He is and set Him apart in our hearts. So our allegiance should be to Him and to Him alone. So, you know, we are entering a time in society where it's not the most popular thing in the world to become a Christian. This thing about going through the motions in Christianity is going to come to an end. It may not be that popular in the days of ahead to name the name of Christ. He is purging His people. That's why we have to realize as believers, indeed, who is He? And if He is Christ, if He is Lord, then we ought to serve Him because of who He is. You remember when Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? He simply said, we're going to have a little test here today. And at the end of this test, we will see which true God answers from heaven. And if Baal is God, then we ought to serve Him. But rather, if the Lord, He is God, then we should serve Him. And you know that story. The Lord answered by fire. Well, you see, brothers and sisters, as we truly set apart Christ in our hearts, then only then are we ready to face whatever comes. You see? Because then and then we have this great confidence 
that the Lord reigns and He is who He claims to be and we go forth not being fearful of man but only fearing God. The tense of this verb is interesting. The word sanctify in our text. It carries with it the, the intention that it needs to occur right now in your heart. You're to sanctify. You are to set apart the Lord now. Today is the day of salvation, as the Scripture says. Now is the exact moment that we need to understand this. Because in the Word of God, we're told, and it teaches that we only have the surety of today. We know not what tomorrow holds. The writer of the Hebrews had this same sense of urgency when he says today, in Hebrews chapter 3, today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. But rather, we're to exhort one another daily while it is called today. Now keep your place there in First uh, Peter. And flip with me, if you will, over to the epistle of Romans. Romans chapter 13. Dr. Paul has spent... 12 chapters of theological discourse and begins to be speaking about the practical implications of, of this grace of Christ. And he says in Romans chapter 13 and verse 11, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of your sleep. See, everybody else is coming out of the closet for what they believe. Now it's high time for us to arouse from our slumber because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. He says, therefore, let us cast off these works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry, not in parties or drunkenness or, or in lewdness that's obscenities or being involved in anything that's impure and living in lust, not in strife, not in anything. We need to put away these things if we have truly set Christ apart in our hearts. And then he gives us a little different metaphor here in verse 14 as he says, Therefore, we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we've seen verses like this as we've been studying Ephesians, haven't we? That we are to put on. Now, now that may seem a little strange to us in our English language that we are to actually put on another person. How can we do that? You see, this was a, 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 a Greek... Uh, matter of speech. They would say that, let's say for example you were a, uh, you, you believed in, in Plato strongly or Socrates. They would say ah then, you need to put on Plato. You need to put on put on Socrates. In other words, by, by saying I, I put them on, they were saying that I'm in fact, I am his disciple. Well that's what Paul is saying here. We are to embrace him fully as to who He is. We are to put Him on just as, as we would put on our, our clothes in the morning. 
Even so, we embrace Him. We, we set Him apart. We put Him on. And as we put Him on, there's no room for anything else. We do not make provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. If He is reigning Lord, if we set Him apart in our hearts, then we don't look to ways in which we can fulfill this flesh. The time is short. We've got to be awake. He may come. We don't know what we face. Are our hearts faithful before Him? We don't provide for this flesh. We don't listen to those things that deter us from Him. We don't watch those things that keep us from being faithful to Him. We don't run with those that would distract us from endearing our hearts totally and completely to Him. We are to put Him on. We are to follow His way, His teachings. We need no other example. Christ came not only to provide salvation for us, but to show us perfectly how we live our lives. Amen. We embrace Him. We put Him on. Now it's very interesting here, as Peter, uh, in, in this one verse that we're looking at, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse, verse 15, he is actually referring back to a text from the prophet Isaiah. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 8, you know, a little bit about the a little bit about the background here in context here in Isaiah chapter 8. It was a time of, of civil war for Israel. Ephraim, the northern kingdom, had allied itself with the major power Syria. And they were causing havoc upon the southern kingdom Judah. And there you have another major world power off to the east, Assyria. And the Israelites believed that the only thing was to do was to ally themselves with Assyria in order to fight the onslaught of these dual kingdoms from the north that were coming upon Judah. And to not do so uh, would to be uh, go against the only hope of saving Israel. So the majority of Jews thought. But this is what the Lord said in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, according to what they were saying. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy. You see. To the Jews, if Isaiah did not submit himself to Assyria, he was committing treason against Judah. He was conspiring against Judah. That was the, the norm of the day. But the Lord said, Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. You see, there was dissension with Judah, and they were in trouble. Oh, what would have happened if they would have allied themselves with Assyria? I'll tell you what would have, would have happened. They would have crushed Judah, and they would have taken Judah over, just as they were latter to take over the northern kingdom and Syria. So the Lord said, don't rely upon these Assyrians. But He says there in verse 13, the Lord of hosts, Him you shall hallow. The Lord of hosts, the sovereign God, the one who is Lord over all things, He is the one that you are to describe as holy. You are to hallow Him. Put Him forth. Honor Him and don't worry about these other nations that are nothing more than a drop in a bucket. Look to Him 
And then he says, let him be your fear. And let him be your dread. Prophet Isaiah is saying here, it is the Lord Almighty alone who you are to regard as holy. He is the Almighty One. He is the Sovereign Lord. He raises up kings and He deposes kings and kingdoms. So we see here that this is exactly what Peter is saying here to, to his followers, to his hearers. Just as the prophet Isaiah said, we are, are only to regard regard. The Lord God is holy, even so we are to only regard Christ as the Holy Lord. You see, this is in itself is an argument for the deity of Christ. The, the, the fact that God that Christ is very God of very God. Because he says the same things about Christ as Isaiah is saying about the Lord. That we are to ascribe him and him alone as the one that rules. We are to trust in Him and Him alone. Now, let's look in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Jesus is sending His disciples out to heal all manner of diseases and to cast out demons and to preach the gospel. And he's told his, excuse me, I said Matthew 20. Let's look at Matthew 10. Matthew 10. This looks better, yeah. Matthew 10. And he told his disciples that in fact he was sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And they were to be as wise as serpents and to be as harmless as doves. And he says the same things, but don't be don't uh, be fearful of man. They will indeed, they will bring you up before their councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. In verse 18, he says, And you will be brought before governors, and you will be brought before kings for my name's sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But he says here in verse 19. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. But it will be given to you from the Father. And then look at verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. Yes, men can kill our bodies, but they can't destroy our eternal souls. But rather... Fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't fear men. We're only to have the fear of God before our face. You see, because we know that Christ is God Almighty, that He is the Holy Lord, and that He reigns. And if we're His people, and we set our hearts before Him, then we don't have anything to worry about, do we? We rest in Him. We rest that the Lord is the light, my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So we approach life no matter what's going on in this world from a vantage point of victory. We've overcome in Christ. So He gives us His peace and power. 
For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. So we live in accordance with who we are. And then he says there, let's turn back to our text in 1 Peter. We sanctify the Lord in our hearts. We go forth without fear. And he says there in verse 16, having a good conscience. You see, here's the, here's the kicker, you see. Have we indeed set apart Christ as Lord? Is He in accordance to our conscience where He ought to be in our hearts? You see, if He's not, we've got problems. We can't live our life. If we're making place for the flesh, if we're doing this, we ought not to be doing that. We're thinking about this, we ought not to be thinking that. The Scripture says in 1 John that God is greater and He knows our hearts. You see? But if our hearts are right before Him and our heart does not condemn us not, then we have confidence before God. So he says there that indeed if we have Christ set apart in our hearts, that's all we really have to worry about, isn't it? Isn't that what God is concerned about? You see, He's not worried about all these other petty things that's going on. We need to focus on what we need to focus on. Making sure we set, set Him apart in our hearts. And if we've done that, then our conscience is clear. And because we have a clear conscience, we keep reading in this text, yes, they may be famous as evildoers, and they may revile us, but they're reviling us because of our good conduct. They don't understand it. They think it's strange that we don't plunge in the same dissipation that they are. And yet, as they revile us, they're going to look at us and say, wow, you sure are different. And then some are going to look at, our, look at us and look at our pure conscience and look at our conduct that glorifies God. And then let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. This is what's going to happen with some people. That you're having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that when they speak against you as evildoers, and they may do that from time to time, but they may... By your good works, which they observe, what happens? They glorify God on the day that Christ comes back. What's happened? They, they, they've seen your witness. They've seen your testimony. And through your life and through your speech, they come to know Christ. Amen. Despite the fact that they may be maligning you. They see Christ and they've embraced Christ. You know, so many times when we brush shoulders with people and we bear witness for Christ, we don't know what's going to happen what God is going to do. We simply plant the seed. But in due time, we may be surprised at the seed that we plant that God has caused to grow. And there, when the Lord comes back, we'll see that these people who may have opposed us when we're here on earth are going to glorify God because we bore a true testimony to them. But we need to make sure that our conscience is clear and that we have confidence before the Lord so that we can have confidence before men. So, what's the main issue? Have we truly set apart Christ as Lord, as the Holy One? And then, when we've done that, secondly, He tells us how we are to speak. Back to our text in 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always. He says there always be ready. 
Not when it's convenient. Not when we're feeling good. Not when the weather's pretty. Not when we got plenty of money in the bank. Now, in the season and out of season, Paul said to the young pastor, he was to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to convince, to rebuke, to exhort with all long sufferings and teachings. We are to always be ready. You know, not when the Lord's going to come. We've got to be ready. We've got to be faithful. We always be ready to give a defense. Some of your translations say the word answer. Always ready to give a defense, to give an answer. The word there is the word apologia. Okay? That's from which we get our English word, what? Apologetics. It means to give a defense. It doesn't mean that we apologize for our faith, but it means that we can give a, a reason if somebody asks us, according to the hope that is within us, that we can, we are supposed to be able to, as Christians, to give a correct, biblical, theological answer for our hope, for the hope that we have. You see, that we ought to be, be able to share the gospel of, of Christ. That's what he alludes to here in verse 17. You see, Christ is a perfect example. Look at verse 17. For it's better if, if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Christ is example. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. You see, he's the perfect example. If Christ suffered, who do you think you are that you may not suffer? You see? This glorious gospel. When they ask you, give a reason for the hope that's in you. Hey, let me tell you. Let me tell you something. God sent His Son to this world because He loved this world so much. And He gave His only Son who never sinned, the perfect God-man, to go to that cross and be the perfect substitute for you. In order that he would lay down his life as the Lamb was laid down his life under the Old Covenant. He was the perfect Lamb of God. And he gave his Son as a sacrifice that through believing in him, even though we are unjust, even though we are sinners, through trusting in Christ, we can become right with God. That's the glory, that's the hope that we have as we talk to somebody. And we share this uh, wonderful hope that we have in the fact that someday we're going to stand before God and I'm not going to be held accountable whether I go to heaven or hell based upon the fact that I did wrong things, I thought wrong things. But I am clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And that's my hope of heaven. And because of that, I have this great assurance and this great hope that I'm His. We give this reason concerning those who ask us about this hope. We give this defense. We give this reason when someone asks us. Now this word here, again, this word here, the word defense, the Greek word apologia, can be used in different circumstances in the Scriptures. First of all, uh, the word here in this text is used in a very informal 
uh, sense. And this is the primary meaning of the word. Simply, uh, you know, if someone comes in, into our lives and, and they see that difference in our life and, and they're curious, you know, you're a little weird, you, you don't do all the things that everybody else do, you actually seem, you seem happy, you know, and we are to give an answer as to why we are who we are. So when someone inquires to us about our Christian faith, we can share with them. We can give this defense, this apologia. It doesn't mean that you have to have a, a degree in apologetics. Not at all. It simply means you share what Christ has done for you. We speak the truth clearly and in love. That's, that's the first uh, instance of how the word is used. And secondly, though, it is used when someone is accusing us. Now let's turn to the book of Acts. And we see the Apostle Paul being caught up in many different situations where he had to do this very thing. He had to give it a defense for his faith. In Acts chapter 22, Paul, back in Acts 21, Paul had been in the temple. And some Jews from Asia saw him there, and they knew who he, who he was, and they were upset. And they said that Paul, verse 28 of chapter 21, that Paul was stirring up trouble in the temple, and that he was teaching all men everywhere, verse 28, against the people that he was teaching against the law and against this place, the temple. And furthermore, this Paul had brought Greeks into the temple and had defiled this place. Well, none of these allegations were true. And yet, Paul had to defend himself. Well, the Jews seized Paul and they were trying to kill him. They were trying to literally beat him to death. And one of the Roman commanders saw what was, what was happening and he delivered Paul from, from being killed, but Paul wanted to give a defense as to what was, what was happening to him. Even the, the commander there in verse 38 uh, thought he was the Egyptian who had stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins into the wilderness. Paul said, no, I'm not this guy either. But he said, said to the commander there, the Roman commander, very politely in verse 39, that I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. You see, he was accused of many things that were not true. And Paul wanted to give his defense before this accusation. And in verse 22, now think about this, brothers and sisters. Paul had been beaten spiritually. Yet he has a frame of mind to want to bear witness to Christ even though what has just happened to him. And he says there in chapter 22, first of all, he says to these Jewish people, with great respect, he says, brethren and fathers. With some great respect, and he says, hear now my defense, my, that's the word, hear now my apologia. Great respect to these people even though they were trying to kill him. They had been trying to kill him. 
And what Paul does here, he says, you know, he, he, he goes back into the fact that he was a Jew, that he was a Pharisee, and that he had persecuted the Christian faith. And yet he says, well, brothers, I want you to understand that I am one of you. And yet, and he gives his testimony of what Christ has done for him and how the Lord appeared to him. So he was able to share this testimony before the Lord. Uh, and then, as we go on in chapter uh, uh, 23, we see that this word, this word apologia, in the third sense, can also be used as you face a formal trial. A formal trial. So, Paul preached there, taught there to the Jews, and they're still angry, and they were still wanting to kill him. So the centurion takes Paul away and, and places him uh, with himself. But yet, he's appearing back to these people at a later time uh, there as he was... Uh, uh, now the chief priest and the council, the Sanhedrin, come before Paul. So now we see Paul in Acts 23 giving this other defense. Look at chapter 23. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men, like we would say, gentlemen, again, after all he's been through, and brethren, he still calls them brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this very day. See, he's a good Jew. Now he's believed, and he says there, what? Because he set apart Christ in his heart, he bears a clean conscience. And again, he's able to give a glorious testimony to these people. The high priest was there, and Annas began to rebuke him and had Paul struck upon the, the mouth. <laughs> And then Paul said to him in verse 3, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sent to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Yet in verse 4, those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, he was sorry that he said what he said because he knew the Scriptures. There in verse 5, I did not know, brethren, again, being kind, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. What are we saying here? We're saying that even though Paul was in the hot seat, he was gracious to those who oppressed him. He was kind to them. He showed them respect no matter where he was or what he was, was doing. And we know what happened later after this that uh, Paul's nephew heard about the plot that they had asked for Paul were going to ask for Paul to come back down and speak to them further but their desire was to kill him. So the commander of the Romans had Paul whisked away to Caesarea. And then in Caesarea Paul uh, is before Felix. Turn with me in Acts chapter 24. It's interesting here that uh, the Jews hired a certain orator by the name of Tertullus to come and bring accusations against Paul. And indeed he did. <laughs> he, he says in verse 5, Tertullus says about Paul uh, to Felix after he had tried to 
flatter Felix and butter him up a great deal. He says, For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes. It's interesting too that they they got this guy Tertullus because no doubt if, if he was not a Roman himself, he was a, was a Hellenistic Jew. So to the fact that they would even hire this guy to speak against to Felix about Paul is amazing in and of itself. But anyway, he gives again these allegations against Paul. And the Lord had said there in Matthew chapter 10 that he would require his servants to stand before governors and before kings. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded for him to speak, this is the way he answered. Look at this. Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of the nation. See, he gives, he gives honor to Felix. He doesn't butter him up or flatter him as Tertullus did, but he, but he honors him. And then he says, I do more cheerfully answer now for myself. The word answer there is the same Greek word that we're looking at there in 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 15 is the word apology. Now that I am going to cheerfully give an answer for myself. Now, did Paul mean there when he says for himself that he was just doing this for himself? Of course not. He was doing it for himself for the glory of the Lord that he might bear forth a witness to the Lord. And he, he gives his defense. In verse 12, he says, I was not in the temple disputing, nor was I trying to incite the crowd. He was there for the purposes of going through, just finished up a purification rite with four other men. And look what he says there in verse, verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, you see, they had, they had denigrated the fact that Paul was a part of this strange sect. They were not a part of the mainstream Judaism. That was the, the problems for everything that was happening that they were accusing Paul. According to the way which they call a sect. So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which were written in the law and in the prophets. What's Paul saying here? See, he's given a correct the correct truth to what he was accused. He's not some strange sect or some cult-like entity. No. He says, I believe in the law. I believe in the prophets. Verse 15. And I have hope in God. We were to always give a reason, a defense, an answer when they ask us according to the what? The hope that we have in us. Paul said, this is the hope that I have. This is the hope that I have. And he, and he says there, which they themselves also accept, the Jews, they have the hope in God that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. So you see, Paul answers them. He says, no, I'm not some strange offshoot. He says, I have simply believed the law and the prophets. The, the, the very law and the prophets that prophesied that Christ would come. I've trusted in Him. So, I'm not strange. No, I simply believe all the precepts that are in the Old Testament. So he gives an answer. And then finally in Acts 26, uh, Paul uh, is on his way to Rome. 
there. He is uh, still in Caesarea, but now, since Felix is off the throne, Festus is there now, and now he stands before the king. He stands before King Agrippa, who was of the Herodian dynasty. Verse, chapter 26 and verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak to your, for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall, there's our word again, apologia, I will answer for myself before you concerning all the things which are accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions, Again, not buttering him up, just acknowledging him for the authority that he is, which we have to do with the Jews. Therefore, he says, I beg you, hear me patient. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the very beginning among, among by our own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know, they knew me, me, knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived the Pharisees. He's relating himself with them. He's finding a common bridge amongst the Jews. And now I stand and judge for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. So you see there, Paul builds a bridge. He again, very respectfully, very kind, uh, speaks to these people. He speaks very logically to those that are accusing him about the validity of his faith. His faith is not some strange aberration, but it has come forth because of the promises within Judaism, within the Old Testament. He clarifies their misconceptions. He answers politely, kindly. It's a soft answer that turns away wrath. Again, he's respectful of them. He, he acknowledges their good, not with flattery, but with honesty and in sincerity. And in Paul, they can find no fault. They could find no reason to persecute him in any way. But because he had appealed to Caesar, because he knew, knew that no doubt that if he went back to Jerusalem, he would get an unfair trial before the Jews and he would be killed. So he appeals to Caesar, and to Caesar he did go. And it's interesting that even in the last few words that we have, about the Apostle Paul. What is he doing in his latter years? You know what he's doing? He's giving a defense for the faith concerning all those that would ask him, what is your reason for this great hope that you have? When we see that, let's look finally in Acts chapter 28. So Paul has arrived in Rome He's been placed under house arrest and he calls all of the leaders of the, of the Jews to come and to meet with him. And he says to them in Acts 28, 20, For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and to speak with you because of the hope of Israel. I have bowed in his chains. See the correlation he makes here? I'm here because of what? He doesn't say the hope of gospel, but the very hope of Israel. This is what the prophets preach. So again, very respectfully, he calls these men to himself 
And in verse 23, So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them, persuading them concerning Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And from morning till evening he did this. Wouldn't you have learned to her, love to have heard that sermon? It was much longer than what you're hearing right now. <laughs> and much more glorious, I'm sure. But Paul expounded them logically uh, what God was doing throughout the Old Testament and how that those promises are fulfilled in Christ. The glories that the Old Covenant had promised are there now being fulfilled and in Christ. Well, Verse 24, it says that some were persuaded. And they believed. They believed what Paul had spoken. And yet, some disbelieved. Some did not believe. Well, there's the pattern, folks. Very simply. We live our lives, setting apart Christ as Lord because of who He is, then we, as God gives us the opportunity, we speak the truth because we have simply acknowledged Him for who He is. Our consciences are right before Him. We're not making provision for the flesh. We rest and we have this peace and this freedom that we stand in the truth of Christ. And that gives us great liberty and joy. That's why Paul could say over and over again, I happily now say to you concerning the gospel, well, this is what we have. So it doesn't make a difference what kind of political scene we face, whether we face poverty or affluence, whatever it be. The main concern that we should have is that our hearts right before Him and we set Him apart in our hearts, and are we always ready because of that to give a defense to those who ask us concerning the hope that is within us? That's the confidence we have in the Lord. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. If God is with us, who can be against us? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Pray, Father, that we might examine our hearts before you. I pray, Father, that there's those here who do not know you as Lord and Savior. They do not have this joy, this confidence that they're your child. And they're standing on shaky ground. I pray that they would run to you. That they would believe the, the glorious gospel. Receive your perfect righteousness and be saved so that they can have this great hope and have the same testimony that we who have believed have before you. So Father, whatever happens in these latter days, we pray that we would examine our hearts and we would be sure that we have sanctified you in our hearts and that we are ready to give a defense 
with this glorious hope. That's what it is. To that end, we pray that you would make us fruitful. Make us fruitful Christians in this kingdom that we live in. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.